These evenings seem to merge together so much, I feel like saying, as I was saying. <laughs> they sort of flow into one another. I promise tonight I won't make it such a marathon as last night. It was, uh, I was determined to get to who did it last night. It a <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to cha- completely change gear tonight, and we're going to look at um, something else, something which I think is equally as important. Um, certainly not so doctrinally complex in the sense of theoretically complex or even complex in terms of our own experience, but is absolutely vitally important. And I speak here particularly of morality and ethics, uh, because these are a vastly important part. And one of the things that often gets missed out often in the Western discourse on Buddhism is speaking about morality and ethics. For some strange reason, Buddhism and the practice of Buddhism almost automatically gets identified with being meditation. Almost, almost so much so that uh, really it's almost like meditationism as opposed to Buddhism. Uh, because everything's identified with what meditation you do. Are you doing samatha? Are you doing vipassana? Are you doing mahamudra? Are you doing zogchen? You know, all these things are actually meditation practices. But what actually gets missed out is something that um, certainly in the early texts is an absolutely vitally important part of the whole practice, which is the foundations in morals and ethics. Now, one of the things you heard me say um, probably a couple of nights ago was actually a lot of Buddhist practice is actually is actually based on behaviour. So it's behaviourally bound. So if you want to know what a particular virtue feels like, do it. <laughs> Rather than wait to do it and wait for the feeling to come upon you. you know, I'm waiting for the feeling of compassion to come upon me. <laughs> you know, or I'm waiting for the feeling of generosity to come upon me. You know, as if it's going to be some kind of divine light that shines it on you. No, the Buddha's message is get on and do it. Um, don't hang around. The path itself reflects this. The way the path is structured, there are so many different ways of dividing up the path. That generally, they're tripartite in the sense that they consist of three elements. And the most common description of the whole Buddhist path and in fact the way that the eightfold path itself is broken down is in terms of sila, samadhi and panya sila is morals or ethics samadhi has to do with all of the meditation practices and really the word samadhi means concentration or absorption It's a word derived from a Hindu context. Some of you might be familiar with it in a more Hindu context. And then panya, usually translated as wisdom, but really is understanding. And the whole of the Eightfold Path is broken down in terms of sila, samadhi, and panya. Buddhaghosa, in his very famous work, Buddhaghosa, for those who are not familiar with his character, is a 5th century commentator working in Sri Lanka. Um, The whole of Theravadan Buddhism, as you will experience it today in Sri Lanka, Burma and Thailand, is really a product of Buddhaghosa. Theravada Buddhism is Buddhaghosa. Um, He wrote this enormous manual, um, which I think is probably in the library, if I'm not mistaken, called the Visuddhimagga, which actually means the path to purity. 
Um, it's a huge meditational manual and um, encyclopedia, really, of Buddhism at the 5th century. <clears throat> so it's a kind of snapshot into the 5th century and the way Buddhism was seen at that particular time. And again, the work is structured in terms of sila, samadhi, and panya. You know, the whole work is broken down into those three forms. The first part, the base, the foundation, as Buddha Gosa tries to make it very clear, is sila. Without sila, your meditation, he says, is useless. Whatever meditation you do, if you're not paying attention to your actual moral ways of being in this world, your ethical way of being in this world, then your meditation practice, in a sense, counts for very little because it's ungrounded. It needs to be grounded. Your meditation grows out of the root, grows, comes to be, out of the soil of sila, at least paying attention to your morals and your ethics. And so the first part I really want to deal with, and this will link up with the Eightfold Path, which I want to talk a little bit about, and then I want to talk about another aspect of morality and ethics in Buddhist practice, is, of course, something that you would have heard on the first night you arrived at Gaia House. And you would have heard it in terms of the five precepts. No doubt you have all been told you must adhere to the five precepts. Um, and you've got a list like something like don't kill, don't steal, don't conduct sexual misconduct, um, don't lie, and don't take intoxicants. Um, and that's a very basic list. And it sounds almost like a prescriptive list that you would get out of any religious tradition. And unfortunately, <clears throat> and I think it's a real pity and um, a great shame, because all of the nuancing is often lost when the list is presented in that way. The precepts themselves are considered to be not prescriptions, but as they call themselves, rules of training. They are training rules. Um, there are many, many training rules in Buddhism. Buddhism, particularly in its early manifestation, was of course a renunciate tradition, um, and in many of these cultures it still primarily is a renunciate tradition, um, of course, encapsulated in the order of monks and nuns, and particularly now the order of monks. Lay precepts or lay rules of training are five. If you're a monk in the Theravadan tradition, you've got 227 of them. Just a little difference. <laughs> um, if you really want to go for the big one, you can go for ten as a lay person. Um, but you don't get much beyond that. Um, 227 rules are laid out in order of infraction, so the, the severest of the first going down to the, right, to the very, very minor ones, such as things about how you chew your food <laughs> and things like this. They're all rules of decorum about being with others. However, that's not the focus where I want to go this evening. The focus where I want to go is initially onto these five precepts. Um, because, as I say, a vast disservice is done to them when we just think of them in terms of prescriptions. Don't kill, don't steal, don't conduct sexual misconduct, and so on and so forth. Let me lay them out properly, because I think it's very, very revealing when you start to lay them out. And hear them in a slightly different way, and it's about hearing them. Because in a sense, and this is the claim I want to make for you, to make to you, is that the precepts themselves are ways of inquiry into your moral 
ethical conduct in this world. That is what they are. They are not meant to be absolutes. They are not like the Ten Commandments. Let's uh, put it in, you know, in a kind of context that you will recognize. They are not prescriptions. They are not underwritten, as disposed of the Ten Commandments are, by God. You know, God, has a good, God is a good guarantor for your religious ethical systems. There is no guarantor in Buddhism because there is no God. You know, so you haven't got that metaphysical basis for them. So what the Buddha is giving us is rules of training. So the first of the precepts runs something like this, if we translate it properly. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Now I hope you hear that, that that's quite different from saying don't kill. Because actually it's a lot wider, isn't it? If you hear it in that way. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. So what it requires you to do is to inquire into all of your relations of harm that you're engaging in, in this world. So it shows actually, when we go through them, that none of these rules of training are mutually exclusive. They all imply each other. It's much, much more of a symbiotic relationship between them than just one, two, three, four, five. Five separate rules. You know, I adhere to one and it has no implication on the others. Of course it does. And this is the whole point about it, that they imply each other. So undertaking a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Well, all of your relationships with harm. Obviously it means don't kill. You know, this is, in a sense, um, the first ethical precept in many ways. I think even better, don't harm is a better way of looking at it because it's saying, don't harm me. Uh, there is a French philosopher called Emmanuel Levinas um, who actually says, this is the first commandment that the face of the other says to you, don't harm me. That's the first thing it says. You know, that's the base. That's where ethics starts from. The face of the other imploring you not to harm, be harmed. Similarly, what the Buddha is really trying to get by the five precepts is that we look at all of the ways that we harm. Now, killing is obviously one way. Killing is due to aversion, by the way, in Buddhist psychological theory. We kill like we kill an insect because we're averse to it. You know, so it, you know, even if it's fear, the fear that you might kill a wasp or something of that sort, or a bee, because it might sting you, and the fear itself is also linked to aversion. So all of those aggressive instincts are linked to aversion. It's literally trying to obliterate the other in case it might harm you in some way. So harm implies all of our relationships with harm. Every possible way that we can harm another. Not just human others, by the way. You know, it's harming living beings. Not just, it doesn't say, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming human beings. It says, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Anything which is living. In terms of, certainly in terms traditionally of sentience. 
having some kind of mind at all that we have to refrain from doing. Because in some senses, what is going to happen, of course, if we harm living beings, we harm ultimately ourselves as well. There's a phrase that's often used in Mahayana Buddhism, which is in caring for self, caring for others, harming self, harming others, or harming others, harming self. So the relationship always falls back on the perpetrator. You know, in harming something, you harm yourself. You set up, again, pathways in the mind to which it becomes easier and easier to do things. So in other words, if you start upon the road of doing something, harming, then it's much easier to do it the second time having done it the first time. What we do is we set up a sankhara. Going back to the previous evenings, we're setting up a habit pattern which enables us to do it much more easily than we have done before. So that's the first of the precepts. And as you can hear, it has a very, very wide scope. And all of the precepts, all of the precepts actually have that scope. They have a wideness to them, almost a amorphousness to them, which makes it very, very difficult to grasp. It's actually far easier, isn't it, if you actually have a prescription? Have you thought about that? If somebody says, don't kill, it's far easier. Because it's a nice, clear prescription. In saying to refrain from harming, it makes it much, much more difficult. And in fact, surprise, surprise, Buddhist ethics are very difficult. Because it makes us inquire into our context, into our situation. This is why they're not absolutes. And I'll go into this a little bit further as we go through. However, one of the things I omitted to mention right at the beginning, the idea of reaching some kind of awakened state requires the perfection not just of insight, but the perfection of morality as well. For us to reach that awakened state, it can't be just insight, because insight can be very cold and clinical itself. Particularly if, it doesn't, if it's not touched by love, and compassion, and softened by those things. Um, as I quoted, I think, on the very, very first evening, the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, um, the German language poet, actually has a wonderful phrase. He says, it's not good enough simply to see. One has to love what one sees. Yeah. That is ultimately a relationship of non-harm. When one begins to love and respect... Hence the reason why I keep stressing to you, even during our meditation practices, when things arise, try to befriend them. Try, if you like, it's a strong word to use, try to love them, no matter what they are, but let them go on their way. Not only is the recognition important, but that space of kindness, that space of love in which they enter into, is equally important. So we can do harm to ourselves even just by brutally seeing. Just seeing, seeing, seeing. Noting, 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 noting. It can be extremely prescriptive and it can be extremely stultifying, really, 
um, in the sense it doesn't awaken you to the what is going on because it doesn't soften you to what is going on. It's merely a clinical looking. Now that's a slight digression, but it's still germane to what I'm talking about because the precept about non-harming is also about non-harming of yourself as a living being. And so all of this self-criticism, all this self-lacerating criticism that we often engage in, to which we are very well schooled in the West, we're taught from a very early yeah, from a very early childhood to engage in this, um, we're taught in many senses to be kind of self-vigilant in the sense of critically vigilant about what we do. I always remember, I always remember when I was a child, and I don't know if you ever had this yourself, I used to have this phrase used to me, if I don't see you doing wrong, God will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a marvellous way of inhibiting you. <laughs> sort of... <laughs> is God watching? <laughs> Actually, is God interested? <laughs> so, one of the things that we're learning to do is loosen up that, that overly critical faculty. Overcritical faculty. Now, this doesn't mean to eradicate conscience, because conscience is a very extremely important part. Having a sense of moral, ethical sensibility about how we act. Often, when we do things wrong, to, in some senses, to for armors against doing it again, because of understanding the way it often rebounds on us. So harming living beings is the first. Then there's the second precept, which is, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking what is not offered. Again, I hope you hear the vast difference in you know, refraining from taking what is not offered than simply stealing. You know? Because again, it implies so much more all the things and all the ways that we can take things which are not offered to us freely. Um, and you can think about all the kinds of usual stuff that goes on in offices, you know, the old paperclip here, the pen, the odd telephone call, you know, all the sorts of things which are taken which are not offered. As I always used to remind my students at university, um, when they were writing essays, plagiarism, is another very good version of taking what is not offered. <laughs> you know, now you've got something called the internet, it makes it even easier to plagiarise things. So taking what is not offered is literally that, which is not given freely to you, which is not you know, proffered to you at all, but you simply take it, lift it, remove it, utilise it for your own benefit, for your own aggrandizement in some way. So these are all the ways that we can, we can literally take which, that which is not given to us freely. And that's another point about it. It's often translated as not given or offered freely. Yeah. Fine to take that which is offered. Yeah. If somebody says, please feel free to use the telephone, that's a different matter from simply using the telephone. Then we come to the third precept, which is absolutely diabolically mistranslated <laughs> and actually shows a lot more about the way 
that we think in the West than it does necessarily about the way the precept was originally formulated. It's usually translated, as I said, you know, to refrain from sexual misconduct or just you know, don't engage in sexual misconduct, something of that form. The actual formulation should be, I undertake a rule of training. I hope you're getting the point now. It's a rule of training. It's a way of sensitizing yourself to things. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. Yeah. That little word sensual, which in Pali is kamesu, yeah, kamesu is anything to do with sensuality. Now, this might be the, it might be the case that one might not want to engage in sexual misconduct in terms of all the ordinary forms of sexual misconduct, of being unfaithful to a partner and things like this. Um, but you might engage in an awful lot of sensual misconduct. You know? And here we can think of abuse of the senses. Overeating. You know? Here's a good one. Here you go. Back to food again. <laughs> Overeating. Overstimulation through listening to too much music. You know, being plugged in, as I was indicating last night, of using the computer too much. Watching too much television, seeing too much cinema. I mean, we have lots and lots of ways these days of amusing ourselves to death. You know, we really are. Because actually that's a lot of what life is about these days, is literally trying to get through and so amusing ourselves literally to death. And what this is saying is this is not a good way to treat yourself. And actually it goes back to the first precept in actually overstimulating yourself, you can be harming a living being, namely you. Yeah. In engaging in the usual sort of stuff, that's the, you know, the kind of sexual misconduct, all the, as I say, unfaithfulness and all this sort of thing, this is very, very much going to harm others and it's going to harm you as well. So as you can see, these are not mutually exclusive. There is not sort of, there is harm and then there is sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct is just, and sensual misconduct is just making fully explicit a particular version of harm that we engage in, that we can so easily engage in, given that one of the major driving forces behind ordinary life is sensuality and sexuality. Um, these are ways that we can really run aground very, very easily in our moral, ethical conduct. Yeah, very easily. Then we come to the fourth precept. And this is a goodie. This is, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Yeah. Now, false speech is different, obviously, to saying out and out don't lie. So it makes you inquire into your speech acts. Now often this is expanded, and actually particularly in the Eightfold Path variety, because you have exactly the same thing, in a sense, in the Eightfold Path, because you have samavacha. Samavacha means right speech or appropriate speech. And appropriate speech is usually defined in terms of what it is not. So appropriate speech is not false speech, it's not harsh speech, it's not divisive speech, 
and it's not gossip. Is there anything left to say? <laughs> Once you cut out all of those speech acts. <laughs> Pardon? Jokes. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> okay, coming back to the serious part about this. So, false speech. Obviously, that implies telling lies. I mean, it's obvious that that's the case. But it's not simply that. Could it be, and I'm not posing these as questions as much as anything else, could it be exaggeration? For example, the little twist you give the story just to make it a little bit funnier? Could it be that? Does that qualify as false speech? Does it qualify exaggeration? When we blow something up, and instead of saying, I have a slight pain here, I have absolute terrible pain in my leg. (laughs) Whilst you've got actually just a cramp. (laughs) Or something like this. Is it these forms... Is it all the ways that we can exaggerate and overemphasize and blow up and make manifest in some way uh, that isn't entirely factual? Is it that? I'll leave you to inquire. Because that's really what it's trying to do. Make you inquire into your speech. Divisive speech or harsh speech. Let's take harsh speech first of all. Well, the Buddha actually says that really one should only speak if it's harmonious. If it's something which brings others together. Whereas actually a lot of what passes for speech is actually harsh in the sense, and and this really goes with divisive as well, that it drives us apart from others. Cuts one person off from another says something particularly malicious about them. Sometimes it's translated as malicious speech as well. That it's harsh in the sense it's malicious. It's saying something about the other person. Well, I wouldn't go and talk to them because they're not a very nice person. For such and such a reason. You're saying this sort of thing about somebody um, so that others stay clear of them. You're dividing in divisive speech. You're literally driving people apart, trying to say something about them. So again, they're not mutually exclusive, these forms. So don't hear them as there's one lump that's divisive and there's one lump that's harsh and so on and so forth. It really is they come together, they intermix. And then a really interesting one, which actually can be translated not just as gossip, but as idle chatter. Idle chatter. Um, Well, this is speech in a sense which could be defined, and I'm saying could, because I'm going to go on and gloss this in a second, it could be defined as literally doing nothing. Idle chatter is something which is, that's just like an engine idling. With an engine idling, it's not doing anything. It's just going, it's just chuntering away to itself. Um, And idle chatter in this way can be just chuntering away to ourselves. Not really communicating anything much. However... Here's a little scenario. If somebody, for example, when I was doing university work, came to me in an interview situation, I might say to them, well, how was your journey? What what sort of things did you see? What were you doing? Where did you stay? Things like this, which could be considered to be idle chatter, but they're not, because it's doing something. In other words, it's helping the person to relax. So, really the whole import behind the 
precept on speech, which obviously can be extended into this, as is right speech, of course, is to make us aware of our speech acts. So that we become more cognizant of literally what is issuing forth from our mouths, rather than often the empty verbiage that does come out when we start to speak, which often can be very meaningless and also can be extremely harmful, going back to the first one. Um, Interestingly, of course, truth can be very harmful as well. What do you think of my new dress? Oh, I think it's awful. (laughs) That could be extremely harmful. I mean, making a joke out of it, but sometimes there is mitigation to what one says to another when you know that it will deliberately hurt because then we'll be violating the first precept, the attempt to hurt. And you might, for example, want to tell the truth simply to hurt the other person. Truth becomes a weapon in that case with which to beat the other. So speech and all of these things that we've looked at so far, we've looked at obviously harming living beings, refraining from taking what is not offered, sensual and sexual misconduct, our speech acts. So these cover a vast amount of our ordinary ways of being in the world. And that is why they're so important. Covering these ways that we find ourselves in everyday situations, not necessarily in retreat centres, although it's very important, obviously, to adhere to them whilst in a retreat centre. It's even more important because there's much more opportunity for transgression to adhere to them outside, to try and make your speech something which is harmonising, something which brings you and the other person together, something which isn't divisive or hard in the ways that we can so often be with our speech. Speech, remember, is our prime, foremost mode of communicating. And here we could actually say speech covers all of our acts in the sense that even our silence constitutes speech. Yeah. Yes, as they often say, there's a little saying in English, you know, um, silence speaks a thousand words. You know, and often it does. Uh, and there are varying qualities to that silence. And in varying languages, and certainly in English, you have all these different qualities of silence, you know, such as a pregnant silence, an uncomfortable silence, you know, a relaxed silence. All these different forms of silences. There's a lovely short story by somebody called Heinrich Böll, who's a Nobel Prize winner, um, where he talked about, where he writes about a man who works in a recording studio. And he records interviews with people. And what he does is he decides to take out all of the speech and splice together all of the silences from the different interviews. Because all of the silences have different qualities to them. It's a lovely idea, isn't it? <laughs> that every silence you engage in says something different. And of course, in these days and in the contemporary world, we speak about, obviously, body language as well. 
So it comes down when we think in, in terms of speech, even down to our gestural response to being. And what I mean by that is the way that we use our gestures. Our body, in some senses, and this is why I've emphasized in the meditation practice paying attention to your posture, because your posture embodies an intention. You know, remember, I kept saying that to you again and again and again throughout the week. You know, pay attention to your posture because your posture embodies an att- intention to stay awake and to stay alert and to stay attentive. You know? And when your posture starts to slip, it means the intention has started to slip in, in the meditation practice. Now, equally so, each of your bodily postures and gestures actually encompasses and embodies intentions. Be they even unconscious intentions. You know, not necessarily even conscious intentions. And the very obvious way of looking at this is our gestures with our hands, the way that we use our hands. We all know, for example, the great difference between that and that, between the clenched fist and the open hand. Now, often in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, the open hand is seen as the gesture of giving, the giving of kindness. Um, all of the Buddha statues that you see that have been produced basically since about the, the first century all actually have what's called mudra, or gestures, which are gestures of awakening. So you have gestures of fearlessness, teaching gestures, touching the earth. You know, and so you, know, you get all of these different types of gestures which are involved. Now, all of them, in a sense, are a language. Our body itself is, in a sense, a language. And I think we ignore it at our peril because our speech might be saying one thing, but our body might be saying something else. Our speech might be saying the right thing, but our body might be doing completely the opposite. So we're looking at our whole gestural response when we start to look at speech. And then we come to the final precept, which is always considered a bit puritanical, which is, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking substances which disturb the balance of the mind. Um, The real crux of that precept is in that last phrase, that disturb the balance of the mind. Now, the Buddha doesn't make this a precept simply out of prudery of saying, you know, don't drink and don't take drugs and things like that. He's not saying out of prudery. What he's saying is out of a sign of realism. Because if you're engaged in this task of trying to clarify the mind, to become as clear as possible about what is going on, then to engage in that sort of behavior, in taking drink and drugs, is actually going in the opposite direction to that which is purifying and clarifying. In fact, it's disturbing the mind. It's actually clouding the mind in most instances. So that judgment, for example, clarity is blunted here. So that's one of the main reasons that the Buddha is giving this precept, is that anybody who's really intent on this path really shouldn't be in a sense, clouding their mind deliberately if they're attempting, on the other hand, to try and clarify it 
It's like pulling in two opposite directions here. And that's the reason why this precept primarily is there. There is another reason why that precept is there as well. <laughs> I kind of more joke about this, because if I actually had a blackboard here and I actually lined them all up with all the precepts, you know, the first one at the top, the precept, and they're all listed down, and you get to the final precept. Well, basically, if you indulge in too much of the final precept, i.e. taking things which cloud the mind and disturb your judgment and balance and everything, you're likely to commit all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Engaging in, for example, false speech, engaging in sensual and sexual misconduct, engaging in taking what is not offered, and certainly engaging in harming other living beings. So please, please don't hear that final precept as kind of a typical religious prudery, because it isn't. It's meant to be actually very realistic in the sense of saying, well, this is what happens with most human beings if they overindulge in these types of substances. Now, again, it's not an absolute. So, I, you know, for example, I lived in Tibetan society for quite a, quite a long time. Tibetans seem to think they have a special dispensation because they drink like anything. <laughs> um, but they always claim, of course, it's not clouding the mind. Well, no. <laughs> Uh, I think there's, I think there's what's called a lot of self-deception uh, there somehow. <laughs> um, but the point I'm trying to make here is that actually, ultimately, of course, any of these precepts depend on how much you want to inquire into them, and that's the important point about it. You know, they become, as I said right at the beginning of talking about this, they become tools for opening up our moral and ethical behaviour. They're not absolutes. If we hear them as absolutes, you do them a disservice. You stop them doing the work that they should do. These should be working for you. you know, they're not meant to be just a set of... Actually, a set of rules is far, far easier in many ways. Buddhism and the Buddha never liked to make things easy because he said life was complex. And knowing when to and when not to in certain things, it's often extremely contextually bound. Something, of course, that is very evident is that every situation that presents itself to us is an ethical situation. It presents us with often ethical dilemmas and often ethical conundrums that we have to deal with, sometimes with no clear answer to them, no obvious ways of dealing with something. Yeah. And so we're always having to negotiate. So actually a lot of our moral ethical behaviour is a series of negotiations that we have to engage in in order to try and live as balanced a life as possible. And particularly lay life. In, in monastic life it's, you know, I was going to say easier because it has 227 rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that you can't do. Um, again, they're meant to be rules of training. They're meant to be ways of sensitizing you to living with others in community, for example. So that's actually what a lot of monastic rules are about, about living together in community. In many ways, even the precepts, just the five, five basic rudimentary precepts that um, Buddhists are meant to live by or even, I would say, even non-Buddhists, I would say somebody who doesn't want, even want to consider themselves a Buddhist, just, this is a sane way of beginning to look at your life you know, in, term, in these terms 
as long as you don't take them as absolutes, because they're always contextually bound. So, all of them really depend on how much you inquire into them. So, taking that fifth precept, it's quite clear that many people who do call themselves Buddhists do drink and sometimes take drugs and things, but particularly drink. But the thing is, you know, is to look and inquire, is it disturbing the balance of the mind? And actually having to look with real honesty with this and about this to see whether one should continue to engage in this behaviour. Because if it's pulling against the rest of your practice then actually you're taking probably one step forward and two steps back in, in terms of your progress on the path. So the precepts themselves are ways of opening up, looking into our ordinary lives. Now there are many, many other ways of looking at this, and there are two particular terms I just want to very briefly touch on, and I'll perhaps flesh this out a little bit more tomorrow night. <clears throat> there are two terms which are present which are considered to be so important that the Buddha calls them guardians of the world. And in Pali, these are called Hiri and Otapa. Hiri and Otapa. Hiri is usually translated as shame. There's a degree of shame. You can equate it with conscience. You can also equate it with a a sense of self-respect as well. All of these translations would fit this particular word. Otapa is fear of wrongdoing. Fear of doing wrong because of the way others might judge you. Now the Buddha is saying that these two aspects of our psyche, because these are actually what are known as mental factors. There are two mental factors which are present in the psyche. Hiri and Otapa, as are their opposites, what are called Ahiri and An Otapa. In other words, lack of self-respect and lack of fear of wrongdoing. You're all basically a sort of shamelessness as well. These are present in the psyche and both are there. Both the positive, the wholesome dimensions and the unwholesome. The way Buddhist psychology is laid out, they tend to be much more talking about wholesome or skillful states of mind and unwholesome or unskillful states of mind rather than good and bad. So our unskillful states of mind are often present because they are the default mechanisms that I've mentioned so often that we fall back on. They're the things that we know. They're the things that we get through and we get by on in ordinary life. Whereas the skillful ones are present in the mind and they manifest occasionally, but they need developing, they need growing. They need, actually, to use this proper word about meditation, they need cultivating, rather than just left as sort of small seedlings, um, which is what they will do unless they are actually fully developed. So these two elements which are present in the mind, both Shame, let's use the old translations for a little bit because these might help you to see. Shame and fear of wrongdoing. Now, when they 
when the Buddha talks about shame, what he means is something that we feel in our own eyes. So he says that the, the judgment of others is not what is paramount when we feel shame. It's the judgment of ourself on ourself. You know, particularly when we've set ourselves a particular ethical moral, uh, goal or moral standard that we want to live by. And when we fall from that, we feel ashamed. We actually lose self-respect when we fall from our own standards. Not standards others have placed on you, but the standards we have set for ourselves. And so this is much more to do with our sense of our own internal ethics that we have. Now, these obviously might be taken on board from outside. They might be, for example, the precepts of Buddhism. You know, the, the five ordinary precepts that we might take. And when we fall from them, when we fall below those standards of, for example, perhaps doing harm or perhaps engaging in false speech or wrong sensual or sexual behavior, then we might, in a sense, feel this sense of loss of self-respect when we engage in it. So these two elements, particularly the one I'm talking about at the moment, are the arbiters of what I call um, psychological ethics, our ethics which are related to our psychology. So the reason why we feel shame is because we judge ourselves. And this is actually quite important because it means that we are having a sense of conscience about what we're engaging in. If we had, hadn't that, then we could engage in all kinds of sort of behaviour, yeah, as often people do. The other, fear of wrongdoing, I think this has a good element to it because what it's saying here is and what the Buddha says and what the commentaries often say is that the decisive judgment here is not the judgment of yourself on yourself but the judgment of others on you and that really equates to our moral standards in this world the word morals um, derives from a Latin term more in other words consensus If we were a society, we might have our own morality, which actually might differ from the morality of somebody out there, from another group out there. So morals is a kind of consensually agreed set of behaviours. And so the arbiters of that are not oneself, but the society that you live in. Now, as you can probably guess, these two can be in conflict. One's own moral standards... And the and ethical standards and the morals or the mores of your society. You know, for example, and I can think of a very good example here, you might take very seriously the precept not to harm and actually have that for your own sense of really strong sense of ethics. And however, however your society says you have got to be conscripted and go and fight and kill. And there might be a case there for really rejecting society and sticking with your own moral conscience. This is, of course, what happened in both world wars when you had conscientious objectors to the idea of killing because it went against their own ethical codes here. However, what the Buddha envisages, actually, in some sense, is a dialogue. And again, this is why it makes Buddhist ethics dynamic and also much more inquiry-based than simple prescriptions because it, inqui- because it requires us 
to engage in a dialogue between the morals of your society and your own personal ethics. And this is a very healthy dialogue. So we don't accept just what our society tells us. However, we might not be right either. Yeah? So the dialogue has to come, where, which is this dialogue between your own individual personal ethics, your own sense of ethical responsibility, and the pressures and the constraints of your societal moralities that you live. Now, somebody, of course, who can be completely moral in the sense of buying into a society's ethics, into society's morals, I should say, could be completely unethical. And you, know, you can see this with kind of totalitarian regimes where somebody buys into, the, to, into literally into the whole system that's set up and ends up being completely unethical, having no ethical sense of responsibility, say, for others whatsoever. And you can think of very good examples like that of any totalitarian regime, the examples like Nazi Germany, Pol Pot's, um, Cambodia, you know, these are examples where people bought into a whole system. Buddha Gosa, that commentator I um, actually mentioned, said that the perfectly moral person who bought into a society was a bit like a prostitute, was somebody who would do anything, basically. Yeah. Now, one of the things, and I'll, perhaps I'll go on to this tomorrow night, because it's a little, I, I said I wasn't going to make a marathon tonight. <laughs> Um, So I'm going to cease here. But one of the things I just want to mention is, of course, one of the things that the Buddha is really trying to again to get us to see is there is no essential goodness or badness to anybody. All of the factors are there within every individual. But it's either atrophied or certainly not developed or it's developed. And that could be unwholesome sides of one's nature or wholesome sides of one's nature. So if you like, the goodness and the badness dwells in just whether you have developed skillful factors in your mind or let the unskillful factors run riot. This is all it is. There is There is no essential goodness or badness. Which again, I hope sounds to you like good news. Because if there was an essential goodness or badness or evil, this is the classic word that's used, isn't it? They are evil, as if they've got this possession, which is called evil, within them. Um, If that was the case, nobody could change. If there was any kind of essential nature to the individual, you couldn't change. The mix, you could tinker around with a bit, but you'd still essentially be that type of person. Good, bad or evil. The Buddha is clearly not saying that, because he says, and actually the Pali scriptures and also the scriptures of many of the traditions are populated, actually wonderfully, with stories of wrongdoers who go on to gain the goal of awakening. Um, In the Pali canon, the most classic version of this is a character called Angulimala. Some of you might have come across him. Any of you come across Angulimala? Yeah. Angulimala is a wonderful character. He's the first serial killer. <laughs> he goes, uh, he's called Angulimala because um, Anguli 
is a finger. He kills people for their fingers because he's going to make a mala out of them. <laughs> a mala is a rosary. Yeah, heaven knows what practices he was up to. But, <laughs> but he's missing one finger <laughs> to make his complete mala of 108 because it has to be 108 in India um, for all kinds of numerical reasons. You know, there's a sort of um, an esotericism surrounding numbers in India. So 108 is a very magical number. Um, so he's waiting for one and he pursues the Buddha to try and kill the Buddha to get the one finger that he needs to make up his mala. Uh, but of course he doesn't. And the, and the Buddha converts him and he ends up as an arahant, <laughs> which is the goal. It's a lovely story, <clears throat> but the whole purpose about it is it's a very moral story. I mean, it's kind of uh, got a moral tale to it, which is no matter what you have done, nobody is irredeemable. I think it's a wonderful message of hope for everybody you know for those who are in, the, in, in in prisons to those who are in all sorts of difficult situations both mentally and physically that nobody is beyond, above and beyond being liberated if you literally commit yourself to doing the practices which will lead to the cultivation of the right mental states here and really, I suppose, what both the precepts and this very brief mention I've made of Hiriyanotapa are trying to get us to see is that the whole of the Buddhist path is a psychological path. It's dealing, even if the practices are there and they're very physical practices, they're dealing with altering your psychology, dealing with altering your minds. This is often termed, for example, the tradition of mental development or mental transformation, transforming the mind. That is what the history of Buddhist thought and practice has been about since its inception. It's actually transforming your mind. Transforming your minds from minds which experience distress and behave not very well, because obviously mental things don't remain as mental things. They come out in speech, hence the precept for speech, and they come out in action. You know, they come out, for example, in stealing, in sexual misconduct, and so on and so forth. You know, so nothing that is mental is innocuous because it often comes out in very, very obvious physical ways. And what the Buddha is saying, of course, and the, the tradition has said for this two and a half thousand years, that that can be different. That can be changed. What we need to do is cultivate those factors within the mind which are present, which can be developed into something wholesome and lead to wholesome forms of life, thereby letting go of those which are unwholesome, leading to unskillful, unwholesome and distressing forms of life. That is what the path is about. Now, mindfulness, last words, Mindfulness is there to get you to be able to see and to cultivate, to develop, develop a very, very clear way of seeing some of these things which are very difficult, such as our speech, such as our ways of behaviour, yeah, such as the ordinary things that we do in life. It's incumbent upon us to develop mindfulness because without mindfulness... We will never let go of craving and clinging. 
And I'll try and pick some of this up tomorrow night in the talk I give tomorrow night as well, to round it out a little further. Okay, that's enough for tonight. Here endeth the sermon. <laughs> okay, well, we have a brief period again for some questions if there are any, um, either about tonight's topic or any of the other night's topics. They don't have to be questions, they can be comments as well. Yeah, we're, com- we're confronted, aren't we, with dilemmas all the time about what to say and what not to say and when it's right to say it and when it's not right to say it. These are the dilemmas of ordinary life and I don't think a retreat situation, although, as you say, it's much, much slower and much, much quieter and a lot of things have been stripped away, but dilemmas still arise of when to say something and when not to say something, you know, when to point out something or when not to point it out. You know, so we're confronted by that. That is because we're immersed in language. You know, that is our main mode of communication. As the philosopher Heidegger says, you know, we're kind of saturated in language. That's ours. You know, we talk all the time. You know, we, we, <laughs> I love the way he says it. He says, you know, we, we talk when we're speaking, and we talk when we're reading, and we talk when we're asleep. <laughs> you know, we're always talking. There's never a situation, in a sense, where we're not really talking. Uh, because we're so immersed in language. Um, and it, therefore it becomes a dilemma, obviously, in, in ordinary situations, even retreat situations, to know when to say something and when not to say something. Yeah. It strikes me, is this why Zen masters say such enigmatic things? Yeah. Because it's so difficult to know what to say, really, isn't it? I mean, it strikes me that it's almost impossible to know if you said the right thing. We do. Say, well, I've done that. It could be right. It could be wrong. Yeah. I just made the judgment <clears throat> at the time. That's the point I was trying to make earlier on as well. That a lot of the conundrums, the ethical, moral conundrums we find ourselves in, don't have simple answers. There is no yes/no answer. Often they are yes and. <laughs> yeah, those kind of answers. Ultimately, you never know whether you're right. The only thing you can do, and this is a point I'm actually going to make much more strongly tomorrow night. The only thing you can do is try and act with the best intention. That's the only thing you can do. But always remember that your intention also can be awry as well in these acts. I mean, Zen koans and things like that are there deliberately to scramble your brain, basically, to kind of stop the normal rational responses 
that we have, because obviously language is a, is a logical medium. I, I say that. <laughs> In the sense that to form a sentence, at least it has to be a kind of logically structured to a certain degree with um, a general coherence to it. Um, but language in general is, is the medium of our rationality and what Zen koans and Zen procedures are trying to do in some senses is actually scramble that so that there isn't a logical, rational response to something. It's much, much more than a response that comes from experience. One of the ways, of course, that we see that language really speaks is in things like poetry. Yeah, this is where language really begins to speak, when it speaks... Um, in the sense that gets you a bit like meditation, to examine something anew. Um, Gerald Manley Hopkins, the poet, had a wonderful expression for it. He said that a poem was a bit like a you know, tinderbox that you use for, they used to use in the 19th century for lighting things, where you strike a flint against it. He said it was a bit like a tinderbox. And the poem was something you struck your head against, and it was a bit like threw out a spark, which illuminated something for a second. And then it went back into darkness. Yeah, and that's what the poem did. It constantly illuminated, but only very, very briefly, something. And so great poetry was something you kept going back to simply because you had to keep, in a sense, you know, sparking things off of it. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, of course, Buddhism itself, and a lot of early Buddhist literature, is written in verse, in poetic metre, um, simply to do that. A lot of poetry is there, present within um, Buddhist thought in general, you know, particularly Japanese, you've got lots and lots of poetry. Even Sanskrit poetry and later Buddhist thought as well, which is there to make the mind reorient itself towards things. Often saying something quite, quite different um, or implying something that we don't see. And so you get lots and lots of different types of verses and verse within, you know, say for example, Japanese poetry, the haiku form being the most obvious one. Yeah. Um, this is interesting um, that you say this because I, um, as you were saying this, I was thinking about a particular Sufi proverb, I think it is. Sorry, the uh, Sufi, Sufi proverb, yeah. Whether you say something about um, before you say something, think about is it true, is it necessary, and is it kind? Mm. Um, but as you've been going through this, okay, this is quite embarrassing to admit, I always have pop songs going through the back of my mind. <laughs> It's very much so. The word, the word mantra in, in Sanskrit actually means to protect the mind. 
That's literally what a mantra is. It's a protection for the mind. So you deliberately focus on a set of syllables, usually. Um, I mean, the most famous one, for example, is Om Mani Padme Hung, which is the Sanskrit mantra. Mantras like that are recited because they keep the mind focused on something which is believed to be more wholesome the kind of, than the junk that's usually running around your mind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they do, I mean, for example, in Tibetan society, not only do that, they do prayer wheels and all sorts of things and recite these things continuously. And there's often mantras rec- you know, recited to doing just various chores around the house that you do these things and you recite these things to protect the mind from going into unskillful places, basically. Yeah. And that's, that's what mantras are very good at. They're objects of concentration, basically. You know, so therefore they protect the mind. Um, and if, if they're useful to you, I'd always say use them. You know, mantras are, are quite useful as ways of actually being able to concentrate, stop the mind from drifting off into things. They're not, in some senses, keys for liberation, certainly not within the early tradition, because they're not used within the early tradition, but they're certainly good at protecting the mind from straying all over the place. Uh, I, I was just thinking, um, if I do have these songs, or maybe for the junior practitioners who do have unskillful minds, that maybe that is a good uh, form of concentration on the mind trying to focus. Yeah. I mean, even just the very first day's practice is usually a, a useful way, just using an object. I mean, I, I, we use the breath, but you can use all sorts of different objects. And a mantra could be one of those to stop the mind from straying. And for beginners, it is very useful to establish yourself a little in concentration before you really start to practice Vipassana, to really practice insight meditation. Not that you have to go massively deep into concentration, but to establish yourself and felt a base of concentration so the mind isn't all over the place. Yeah. It's, it's quite useful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, very much within, <clears throat> very much within the text, there's the idea that lay people are quite capable of attaining liberation. There is no, there's no bar on that. It's just that it's more difficult because, obviously, of all of the um, 
conflicts that there are in lay life, often with you know, developing a spiritual practice. A spiritual practice, by its very nature, is often having to be quite single-minded. And, for example, in family life, there's all the pulls of family life on the individual. So the Buddha is saying it's perfectly, you know, it's perfectly feasible that any lay person... There are a number of cases, actually, in the early texts of lay people retaining awakening... Um, it's perfectly feasible for lay people to attain awakening. It's just more difficult. You've got to be more single-minded and actually more concentrated almost than the, than the monastic because the monastic, in a sense, has the ideal environment in order to do that. That's what monasticism is about. It's not, it's not an exclusive club. It's about actually providing the ideal conditions for you know, this, this process of awakening to happen. There are suttas within the early within the early Pali Canon which are devoted to lay people, for example. I mean, there's one in the long discourses called the Samanya Pala Sutta and the Sigalavada Sutta. You know, the Sigalavada Sutta in particular, Sigalavada, it's not Samanya Pala, sorry. The Sigalavada Sutta in particular is devoted to lay ethics and what lay people should do how to live a lay life, how not to... For example, even the Buddha talks about how you should divide up your money, Um, how much you should allot to giving away to charity, how much you should allot to your wife, (laughs) and really practical stuff like this. So he's very much concerned that lay people are very much part of... um, very much have that potential to, to reach awakening. It's not that he gears his teaching more towards lay people towards the end of his life. That's certainly not true. Um, it's mixed throughout, you know, throughout the life of the um, life of the Buddha, because he's teaching to a whole cross section of Indian society. A lot of the discourses, by its very na- by their very nature, addressed to the monastics, but there are a lot addressed to lay people as well. People that come to ask him questions, you know, people that are living lay lives. Um, and particularly Brahmins, because they lived very much lay lives in, in Indian society at that time. And it was very much a household life. So it's always there. By the growth of Mahayana Buddhism, you get lay-driven movements as well. You know, in Japanese Buddhism, you've got very much lay-driven movements within it. So throughout the history of Buddhism, right from the time of the Buddha, there's always been a big place for the laity here in being able to attain the goal. You know, whether it's the goal of early Buddhism or the goal of Mahayana Buddhism, which are slightly different. But there's always been that opportunity for individuals to do it. But it does, and he always stresses this, it does take dedication. You know, no matter which form. For the monk, you know, for the monk, you can go into a monastery. I mean, I've been there, I've seen monks like this. You can be monks who are just idling their time away in monasteries, having a very, very nice life. You know, because they get fed... (laughs) They've got a nice roof over their head. They've got at least a change of robes. You know, often these people wouldn't be getting that sort of life if they were outside in ordinary lay life. They'd be having a much tougher time. Um, I mean, this was such a big problem, even in early Buddhism, that Ashoka, who's only living probably about 100 years after the Buddha's death, is saying that the Sangha had to be purified of these unwholesome elements who had entered into it. You know, and even these days, this is why, you know, you go to these countries... Um, where Buddhist monasticism is a big part, don't expect to go and see perfect monks and nuns and everything else. I mean, they're communities of people, and there are many people there for the wrong motivation um, within them. However, a layperson who really, really practices and devotes themselves to practice um, is quite capable of getting the goal, probably more so than that lazy monk, who's ever likely to. 
to do it. Now, I think um, just one final kind of comment on the back of your question, which I think is an important one for where we are, is that, and I think I might have mentioned this, is that we are very unusual in the West. Every culture that Buddhism has gone into, it's primarily been a monastic-driven order that has been the precursor of it moving out into the laity. It's always been. In fact, I remember years and years ago, um, when the Dalai Lama first came to the West and I asked him a question once, I said, how much do you think monasticism is going to be a part of the development of Buddhism in the West? And he gave a very traditional answer. He said, well, I think there has to be the establishment of monasteries and there has to be a, a monastic sangha for Buddhism to really, really develop in the West. I asked him that question 20 years later and I said to him exactly the same thing. And he said absolutely no importance whatsoever. You know, that he'd actually seen, of course, that the majority of people in the West are lay people. Yeah. Um, lay people who bring a lot of dedication, often, um, to doing this sort of thing. You, know, you, you go to a lay community in, in um, Sri Lanka, you will not find a group of people as large as this, um, of lay people, engaging in these sorts of practices. Yeah. They just don't do it. It's not part of their culture. You go to Thailand, you'll find very, very few people, lay people, engaging in these kinds of practices. This is mainly for monastics, what you are doing. This is considered to be the preserve in these traditional cultures of monasticism. However, that's not the case in the West. That The majority of people doing these sorts of practices are lay people. This is a lay-driven form of Buddhism. And so it's historically very, very different um, from the forms of Buddhism that have grown up traditionally here. I mean, one thing that's always very impressed, for example, people like the Dalai Lama, and again, I remember having a conversation with him about this, and saying one of the things that really impresses him is, of course, our ability to learn. Because of our education system, we actually learn a lot quicker. Tibetan, Tibetan education system is a very, very long, laborious process. Education system here encourages us to learn quite quickly. I always remember hearing him say that he said, um, One thing that impresses me, he says about Western people, is they learn very quickly. The thing that doesn't impress me so much is how quickly they forget. (laughs) 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 Because that's that's the other side, you know. I always always think that universities are places for people learning to forget. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it's true often of Buddhist teaching as well, that, that we might learn them very quickly, but we also forget them very quickly too. So there are good sides and bad sides, but one of the things I really, as I say, answering on the back of your question more than a direct response to your question, is that I think we have a very, very lay-driven movement, and it will continue to be so, and this is the way that Buddhism is going to develop in the West as a lay movement primarily. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of learning to do. of how to integrate these what have been traditionally monastic practices into lay life, which is not a situation that has arisen before. Um, One of the ways that's happening is through the mindfulness-based therapies. Mm. And I'm wondering if the point you made about morals and ethics being missing from a lot of Western approaches to meditation, Mm. is that true of those therapies? Yes, I think it is. That one of, I suppose one of the, I hesitate to say criticisms, but certainly one of the criticisms I could level at the way often um, 
meditation is presented in these therapeutic contexts is it does not stress necessarily changing your life because actually um, you know, this is what Buddhism is ultimately about it's not a case of just letting the meditation do all the work you have to do some work as, as well in actually altering some of the structures of your life for the meditation to really work now it's not a deep criticism in a sense because I think you know so far these therapists have set their stalls out at very specific problems. Yeah. If they start to widen it, I think that the whole question of morals and ethics and that becomes an important part. I think it's a part of an ongoing discussion you know, as to where these, this use of meditation in, in therapeutic work goes, ultimately, and how, it, it's, how it's nuanced and how it's developed within it. Because at the moment, I think it's at a fairly, fairly rudimentary stage. You know, with a very crude understanding often of the Buddhist psychology that goes with it. Yeah. A bit of a big, big one here. When you, I think um, the lady that asked, asking you a question about modern life and about developing printing machines. So, mm-hmm. um, I wonder how we can resolve issues that we're faced with in, in the modern day. How, how Buddhism can face the, the fact that we have to defend our country in a, in, a, in a war situation or things like abortion and nuclear power, all those issues that are, are not um, uh, that uh, the monastic tradition won't <coughs> face because mm. they don't have to face those kind of um, realities. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not saying there's an answer to this, but it's a big one for me. Mm. How how does one um, follow a tradition, a Buddhist tradition, if one can't resolve issues like this in in, in oneself? Mm. Well, I think obviously, I mean, some of the issues that we talk about in the contemporary world just simply weren't around in the Buddhist time. I mean, they simply weren't around. I mean, there there is no textual evidence you could point to and say, well, the Buddha says this about so and so. However. What you what has happened, actually, and you see this, I mean, I can point you to a book if you're interested in this whole topic. It's called An Introduction to Buddhist Ethics, and it's by somebody called Peter Harvey. He shows Buddhist responses in various cultures to ethical issues, modern ethical issues primarily. Uh, even Buddhist responses to biomedical ethical issues, you know, which of course were never around in the Buddha's time. But there, if you like, are responses that you can formulate out of a Buddhist approach to contemporary issues. Uh, and obviously there's a different, dependent on the issue that's involved. And it's a dialogue, because some, for example, Buddhist traditions will have one view about it, developing their view, again, out of the same sets of material, and another will have another view. And I think that's healthy. I think it's a very healthy situation, that there is a dialogue about such situations, such as as abortion, for example. There's many, many, many differing views about that. There is many differing views about war, for example, within Buddhist cultures, about it, you know, whether whether there's a justifiability, for example, of going, you know, for example, say something like the Second World War, whether there's a justifiability to going to war in those instances or not. So there are Buddhist responses, and I think um, that's continuing. The more we see um, issues and ethical and moral issues arising in our societies, then we see more and more Buddhist responses. And there's a lot coming out of the West as well, because obviously um, 
we are probably more concerned about some of these things than traditional cultures are. Not to say the traditional cultures aren't approaching them as well, but I think there's much more going on in the West here. But if you're interested, I can give you the title of that book again. Okay, I think we should draw a line. But just before we go, I want to give you two little haikus, which are talking about language, just to finish off the evening. Um, The first one, I think, is very interesting. It's just a little haiku which goes like this. It says, my house burnt down last night. Now I have a clear view of the moon. It's meant to help you to see impermanence. Or, come quickly by the fire, my friend, I'll show you something beautiful. A ball of snow. (laughs) Okay, that's it. (laughs) Come quickly by the fire, my friend, I will show you something beautiful. A ball of snow. A ball of snow? Yes. That was deliberate. (laughs) Okay, thank you, everybody. And... uh, Okay, we're back in about 10 minutes or so. Somebody can ring the bell just to remind everybody uh, for those who are coming back for the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.